All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 23, looking at verses 12 through 35. We've been working our way through the book of Acts for a couple of years. We're nearing the end now, so in the next couple of months, we will wrap up our study and begin something new. Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35 is what we're looking at today. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us, that you would teach us truth, truth that your son says you use to sanctify us. We pray that our faith would be stronger, that our love would be greater. We pray, Lord, that, um, that we would be different. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys having a good day? Amen. Must be nice. Jeez. You ever have a bad day like that? Like you're having a bad day and like you're feeling it and like you're looking around at everybody else having a good day and you're like, what the heck? These stupid people with their good days. We have bad days. Like when I have a bad day, it's, uh, it's always superficial and lame and I, I'm being a big baby. In the moment, I don't think I'm being a baby, but, at the, but, but I am. In hindsight, I'm always like, okay. So like our bad, when we're having a bad day, when most of us are having a bad day, it's like, uh, oh, you get up and you're running a little bit late for work or school and you're like, oh, I don't have any clothes. So you go to the laundry room and you realize you didn't put the wet clothes from the washer into the dryer. So now you're like, ooh, now you're rummaging through dirty clothes. And that's not a big deal. You, you know, you're clocking that, but you're like, whatever. You move on. You go to the gas station because you have to get gas because you didn't get it the night before. And uh, of course, the person in front of you uh, is buying like, $50 worth of lottery tickets, and now you got to wait for their scratch-off thing, and that's putting you in a mood, and then you get to work, and you start thinking, like, oh, I can't wait, it's like, it's, things aren't going well, and lots of little inconveniences, little things, you know, make, make your day feel bad, right? And, it, and it's, it's not that these are severe inconveniences as much as it is we're clocking them, we're keeping track, right? And we're letting them build up. We're paying attention to them. And, and as we're paying attention to them, we're not paying attention to the good things, the blessings, the things that are easy, the things that are enjoyable. We're not clocking those at all. In fact, when we are having a bad day, uh, we begin to anticipate more bad things, right? It's like, what's next? What's coming on? And it's like thinking like, I'm just going to go home and I would get out of this situation. I'm going to get home and then I'm going to reheat that dinner. That leftovers that are so good, they're my favorite. They're better warmed up. You know what's going to happen. Like they're better warmed up. And and so you're, you're like waiting, you're waiting, and you're like, I get home, and then my son ate it for lunch. And I don't yell at him. I, in my heart, I yell at him because he didn't do anything wrong. I can't yell at him in person. So I yell at him in my heart, like, ugh. Um, it's just, it's a microcosm, right? It's a, it's a bad day. Ugh, poor me. Like, okay. But what's happening is, in those moments, as I'm clocking the inconveniences and the afflictions of my day, I am living not only as if no good things are happening, I'm also living as if there is no God. I'm living as if there is no order or purpose to my day or my life. I'm living like an angry atheist. And this becomes a problem, right? Because when, when you live like that, you become insufferable unpleasant at least, towards others. Your misery affects other people. And this matters because sometimes you're not just having a bad day, you're going through some real stuff. 
Sometimes a bad day can begin to feel like a bad life. Begin to feel as if there is no order or purpose. And you begin to ask the question, where is God? What is he doing? What is he doing? Why isn't he doing something? So as we're going to look in our passage today, we're, we're, we're going into the, the, the end of the book of Acts and the, the end towards the end of Paul's life. And uh, it's, not, it's not been going great. Things are, things are going to get worse for him. And I want us to be upheld with the same doctrine that I believe upheld Paul and all the apostles and the prophets, the patriarchs, even Joseph in Genesis. It's the doctrine of providence. That's what I want us to hold on to today, the doctrine of providence. And here specifically is the principle that I think is going to be clear by the end. The doctrine of providence helps us to see God in every part of our lives. The doctrine, right, this theology the doctrine of providence helps us to see God in every part of our lives, which, by the way, if you can see God in every part of your life, it really does fit you for the circumstances of the day. So what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 23, 12 through 35, is the Apostle Paul um, falling prey to a conspiracy to kill him. Now, if you don't know about where we're at in the book of Acts. Let me just say this very, very punctuated, brief summary. The Apostle Paul has gone on three missionary journeys. Each time he goes out, he preaches the gospel, he plants churches, he ministers to people, and uh, he's continuing to reach the Gentile population more and more, more and more Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But he's reaching Jews and Gentiles, he's preaching the gospel, making disciples, comes back every time, comes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, and as soon as he gets off the boat and he starts making his way to Jerusalem, he finds out that people are lying about him, gossiping about him, uh, and this has stirred up like a mob-like mentality of his Jewish brothers that want to come against him. And uh, he's assaulted, but he gets arrested even though he's innocent. And, and now he finds himself in trouble with both Roman authorities, essentially, uh, and the Jewish authorities. So this is where we're at. Chapter 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. There's the conspiracy, the conspiracy. You know what a conspiracy is, right? Half of you believe in that stuff. You believe in the conspiracy theories probably, right? I don't believe in the conspiracy theories. I just love conspiracy theories. I find them eminently entertaining and much better than any Marvel movie that comes out every other month. So a conspiracy is a plot, right? An organized plot by a group of people to do something illegal, unlawful, or harmful, right? And so, and even the word is used here, conspiracy. Some Jewish people are conspiring to kill Paul. And um, they do it in the context of their faith, their religion. Talk about hypocritical religion. They, they're making an oath 
right? They're making a life-death oath. We will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. uh, They're saying, I swear to God on my life that we are going to kill Paul. Why are they tripping? Why Why are they so amped? Like, why are they so triggered by Paul? Because like, that seems, it seems kind of nutty, doesn't it? Like, this happens again and again. People want to kill Paul. It's like they wanted to kill Jesus. And it's usually one of two reasons, right? Sometimes people are sort of whipped up into a frenzy because of lies, misunderstandings and lies, right? And then Paul has been lied about. And one of the big ones is, is that he's bringing Gentiles into the temple where they are not to be admitted, which by the way, didn't happen, couldn't have happened because at the moment he would have brought Gentiles into the court of the Jews or anything, uh, it would have been noticed and there would have been swift consequences. So this never happened, but that was the accusation. So people hearing lies that are outrageous, but believable enough They are now triggered, and they're just overreacting. They want to see Paul dead. It still seems like quite the leap, but that's oftentimes how it works, right? People people can get hysterical from lies and misinformation. Or people are radicalized by indoctrination, right? That's oftentimes what happens. People are indoctrinated. They're taught a very specific way of being, thinking, and doing, which demonizes other people to such a degree, or an individual sometimes to such a degree, that the only recourse, right, is to, if you come across that person or those people, is to try to push them out, down, or off a cliff. Whatever the case is, uh, these people want Paul dead, and so they get organized, and then the conspiracy is exposed by Paul's nephew, which I don't remember. I've been reading the book of Acts for 30 years. I don't remember Uncle Paul having a nephew. I just don't remember that. I'm like, is that in the Greek? Because I don't remember this at all. How do I not remember that Uncle, I don't, Uncle Paul? I would have remembered Uncle Paul. But he, uh, yeah, so there you go. Check it out. Uh, Uncle Paul's nephew in verses uh, 16 through 22 when this conspiracy is exposed. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called out one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul... uh, The prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire uh, somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him and they have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, little nephew, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. All right. I love this story. This is such a cool story, right? This is so cool. This happened. Paul's nephew saved the day. Paul, and I like to think Paul's little nephew. Like I like to think like middle school. I know he wasn't. I like to think middle school, like on a BMX bike, riding around town, he hears the thing. It just sounds, it just sounds like such a cool story, but probably an adult uh, nephew saving the day there. It's pretty great. So the nephew tells Paul, Paul tells the centurion, like soldier, soldier tells uh, the, the, the one in authority, right, the tribune, and, uh, 
And so the, the tribune uh, says, all right, well, uh, let's, let's take care of this. And what he's doing is he's, he's gonna protect Paul, by really, but he's really protecting himself. Look at verses 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he's going to protect Paul. He doesn't want trouble. He doesn't want a riot. He doesn't want drama. So how many? 200 because of who? 40 people that are going to kill him. That's a lot. It does sound... (laughs) <laughs> Some people argue that look, those were 40 assassins, like it's, like it's an action movie. I don't think it was 40 assassins. Uh, I don't think you would need 40 assassins. That's the whole point of hiring an assassin. You need one. 40 is a mob. So they got 40 people that want to kill him. They, he gets 200 of these soldiers, gears them up. And so Paul is going to be protected. So the tribune is protected. And they're going to send him off to Felix, right? The governor. Go up up the chain of command, right? So the tribune wants to get out of this mess and he's gonna send it all to Felix. And now here is uh, the letter, a summary of the letter that was sent. It says in verse 25, he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysia to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. What a dork. He's like making himself the hero. It's just so funny to me. Like, that's, that's what we do, though, right? Like, you know, listen, I, you're welcome, uh, Felix. Uh, I am quite the hero. So he says, I came upon them and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed, by the way, Paul's still, though, imprisoned at this point. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So that's the letter that is going to be sent, the gist of it, making himself out to be the hero. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, or Patris, that's a city in between. Uh, and on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay. We're going to stop there. We're going to hit pause. There's a whole lot of story, right? And so you can't cover all of it. I want us to stop at this point. It's a good place to hit pause. And we'll come back to it next week. This is Paul's life. Paul's a faithful servant of the Lord. He's given his life for the glory of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is faithful and he is persecuted for it. He is hated by his people. Do you know what it means to be hated? Have you ever been hated by somebody? Some of you have. He's hated by people that he loves. He's hunted by those people. He's beaten, he's left for dead, he's lied about and slandered. 
He suffers. He suffers, and he's willing to suffer. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to do it for the Lord. And he, he suffers all kinds of... He, there's a rift in a friendship we read about in the book of Acts. He suffers a rift in his friendship. Suffers shipwreck. He almost dies. And now, at the, after his third missionary journey, he's arrested for doing nothing wrong, for doing everything right. He's not even in a position where legally he should be under arrest. In fact, Felix should let him go until the court date, judging by Roman laws, but he's not. He's keeping him in his own palace. And this is, here's what's going to happen. Uh, spoiler, uh, Paul's not getting out. He's going to be in jail for a long time here. They're going to keep delaying his trial. Things are going to drag out, and that's where he will be writing what we call the, some of these prison epistles Letters he wrote from jail. This is Paul's life. And it's fair, right? When you're in a situation like this, where like, wow, everything is going wrong. We're not talking about a bad day. We're talking about affliction, pain, desertion, opposition. Like his life is in jeopardy. Like it's, it's, it's a common thing. When life gets like this, you say like, well, where is God? What is God doing? The psalmists do this a lot, right? The psalmists are the honest ones. Not that people are lying in the Bible, but like the psalmists are honest. They're transparent. They're like, hey, God, why'd you abandon me? Even though God doesn't abandon his people. That's how it feels, right? That's how it feels. So we don't see Paul struggling with that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But what, what I do know is that there is a doctrine that certainly, that Paul teaches, there is a doctrine that certainly supported Paul's faith and got him through these times when it can feel as if God is absent, if not inactive. And it is the doctrine of divine providence, okay? So this doctrine, I want you to know. I want you to believe this doctrine. I want you to embrace this doctrine because it does make the difference. The doctrine of, of providence is a stabilizer to your faith when your circumstances are treacherous. Now, providence, uh, you know, you, you might be familiar with the term if you've been at Redeemer. Like, we're a rather theologically oriented church, so we talk about doctrines like providence. But if you're not familiar, you've certainly heard the word before. You've heard of Providence, Rhode Island. Providence was founded by Roger Williams, a Baptist, kind of a Baptist. Not a good Baptist. Don't worry about it. He was, he was a terrible Baptist. Uh, but, I mean, uh, but he, he founded Rhode Island, right, 1636, Big believer in um, freedom of religion, allowing people to, you be you, you do you, shouldn't suffer harm by the state because you believe or practice a particular religion. But he, he called the place providence because he believed it was God's providence that led him to the discovery of this land. Providence, uh, let me give you a simple definition. We'll go big picture first. Providence is God's continual involvement and activity in the world. Now, that's not a good enough definition, okay? We're just starting there. Providence is God's continual involvement and activity in the world. I say that it's not big enough because there's much more to it, right? It's not clear enough because it's not just God's involvement and activity in the world because that could just be here and there. It's God's ongoing activity in all of the world, at all times, right? It's, it, is, it is more than that. In fact, the Second London Confession, which is the greatest Baptist confession of faith, 
Chapter five is all on providence. So I would encourage you to check that out. But here's paragraph one. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. But you won't remember all that. <laughs> I can't remember all that. That's, that's a pretty good definition. It is God's ongoing, continual involvement and activity in all of the world at all times. And when you read theology on the doctrine of, of providence, you, uh, you see that there are different aspects to it. Like, what does it mean that God is governing, right? That's a word that'll use, uh, they use oftentimes. God is governing and overseeing uh, things. Uh, so they usually break it down into, or they oftentimes break it down into three parts, right? So, Providence is God's continual involvement and activity in all of the world at all times by which he preserves all things. That's the first, right? So in God's providence, he is preserving all things, which simply uh, means that uh, God maintains what he has created. That's, that's the simplest way to say it. God created all things, right? And so the, the deist, right, which is a kind of a theologian, the deist says God created all things, got it operational, and then peaced out. It's just going to run itself. Laws of nature just doing their thing, operating independent from God. But the theist, right, a, a, a biblical theologian would say, no, no, God created all things, and then he maintains his creation. He is still involved. He is still engaged. It's the doctrine of providence. He maintains all things. So let me just give you one verse here. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse six, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. God actively preserves the entire created order. That's an aspect of his providence, which means that, that the creation does not exist. It cannot exist on its own, independent from God, it continues as is because God says so, because God attends to it. And we know, we know what this is like. We know that the reason our hearts continue to beat, that uh, the earth continues to rotate on its axis and revolve around the, the sun, uh, the reason our, our galaxy is soaring through the universe, like these things are all continuing because God says so because God allows it. So there's this preservation of all things, it's an aspect of it. But there's another word, and we're gonna, we're gonna, there's a couple of words I use for this second component. We're gonna just call it cooperation. Divine providence, right? God's continual involvement and activity in all of the world at all times, by which he preserves all things, by which he cooperates with creation. Now, cooperation, you might not like that word. You might think, why is, God does not have to cooperate with anybody. God just does his thing. We cooperate with God at best. God doesn't cooperate with us. But what theologians mean when they say this is that, that God attends to all of the 
the actions and activities to all of the things that take place in the created order. God attends to all of it without violating what we would call laws of nature or even human will, right? Outside of miraculous sort of, of accounts. In other words, to say that God in his providence cooperates with creation, we are speaking to the idea that though God is the ultimate cause, the creator of all things, cause and effect in life is very real. There's cause and effect, right? We call it secondary causes, right? So while God might be the ultimate cause, um, in this life, people make certain decisions and there are consequences for those actions. Cause and effect is real and people are responsible for the choices that they make. And yet, God remains the first cause and governs all actions and events. So you have to, you have to understand this about providence. Providence is God's activity and involvement in all things and all times. Actions as well as events. So uh, let's talk about an action that we can wrap our brain around. Uh, Psalm 104, starting in verse 10. You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. And from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Beautiful, right? But we all took middle school science. So we know about evaporation. And flower stuff. I don't know. I didn't pay attention to school. But there is science that explains. Like, we know how it works, right? We're like, the water that like, gets magically sucked up into the air, and then it gets tired of hanging out, and then it comes down. And then photosynthesis, there's a word. That's a real word. Uh, it puts, like, magical power into green things, and they get bigger, something like that. Anyways, science can explain this stuff. We get it. We understand. And yet, God... God is said to superintend all of it. God oversees it. Why does the grass grow? Well, photosynthesis, I think. Uh, yes, but ultimately why? Because God, right? Okay. Then what about the actions of people? Does God stop being providential over the actions of people? I mean, we have to admit, if you're reading the Bible, if you, I mean, one reading of the Bible, you should be able to say, God holds us responsible for our actions unless we are forgiven through Jesus Christ. He then forgives us for our actions. But people are responsible for what they do. We can see this in the scripture. We are responsible for what we do, the good and the bad. You get the praise and you get the blame. So what are we to think about God's providence over the actions of evil men? or over the, act, the wicked actions of sinners, especially as it relates to our lives. Like, think about what Paul is going through, right? I mean, Paul's some bad people making some bad plans to hurt him. Now, they are going to be held responsible, ultimately. They will be held accountable for it. We're not saying that they shouldn't. But how do we think about it? Because how you think about the things that are marking and marring your existence, how you think about them will determine the quality of your experience. So 
What do we do with the bad things? Well, the book of Genesis is kind of helpful here, right? Because Joseph, Joseph was uh, the youngest son, favorited, loved by his father. Not, don't do that, people. They, because his brothers were jealous. And uh, they, short story is they sold him into slavery. Think about that. They sold him into slavery. Terrifying. He lost the family that he loved, he, that he prized. He lost his identity, sold into slavery. Now, as God attended his circumstances, he happened to have ups and downs until he wound up in Egypt, exalted above almost all of the people, second in command of Pharaoh. So Joseph is the man for all intents and purposes. Well, at the end of the book of Genesis, his family and the people that are, are, are living out in that land, which would become Israel, they're experiencing drought and famine, and so they go to Egypt for help. And when they get to Egypt for help, they find the leader, they talk to the one in charge, and it's their brother, the one, the one that they did dirty. And Genesis 45, 5, listen to what Joseph says. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph finally has the opportunity to give the most ultimate ironic payback that I want him to give to them so bad in my flesh. And instead, he says, no, uh, I don't even, I don't want you to like destroy yourself over this. I want you to understand that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In fact, that's exactly what he says in Genesis 50, verses 20 and 21, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What in the world? He, com he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Why is he not bitter, jaded, angry? He, he really went through it. You was like, oh, well, it's because now he's number two. Yeah, but he had to go through a nightmare to be there. I'm sure he would rather have just had a nice, peaceful existence with his family. It's because he understands the doctrine of providence. He understands that, that people do bad things and they don't get a pass for that. I mean, he's forgiving his brothers here, and that's very kind of him. People do bad things. We sin. People are going to hurt you. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna do you dirty. But if all you see is the wicked actions of a bad person or the mistakes that someone might make, if all you see is that, you're not equipped to deal with that event as a mark or a marring on your life as much as if you understand God's providence in it, meaning that he can use that for something good. It doesn't mean that thing is good. Selling Joseph into slavery wasn't good. It was sinful. It was wrong, but it can be used for good. And that's where we're going. And by the way, it, it, the, here's what we're saying. Here's what we're saying. In this whole idea of God cooperating, okay, to get back to the, the precise theology. 
God isn't violating natural law in his providential work, okay? Even though they're his laws, but they don't exist outside of him. But he's not violating natural law. And he's not violating human will by, by governing and superintending, by, by watching over, preserving all things and all people, events, and actions. But he is providential over all things, even sin. And if you doubt that God can be and is providential over even sinful actions, then you must doubt the basis of our salvation. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no redemption if God is not sovereign over even the sinful actions of wicked people because he couldn't otherwise guarantee that Jesus would suffer and die. And Peter makes this point. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, and I think it's his first sermon, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So clearly, clearly, God providentially oversaw all of the actions of evil men. And, and Peter is speaking to them as guilty people. Like, you did this thing. You did this thing. And yet, it was a part of the plan. They're responsible for what they did. And yet, God is sovereign. Spurgeon said this thing about, like, how can God be, people say, how can God be absolutely sovereign and this kind of, of a God of providence? And how can people be responsible how do you reconcile the two, right? That's what people ask. And Spurgeon said, I don't try to reconcile. I don't have to reconcile man's responsibility and God's sovereignty because you don't have to reconcile friends. They know each other. They get along. I don't understand their relationship. It's a little nutty to me, but they are both true. So the doctrine of providence means God's continual involvement and activity in all of the world at all times in which he's preserving all things, cooperating with creation, and guiding, this is the third part, guiding all things to their proper end or goal or purpose. We don't have time to get into all of it, but let's just say this. The proper end of all things is the glory of God. The proper end of all things is the pleasure of God. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here is what we know about God and the doctrine of providence, right? The doctrine of providence helps us see God in every part of our lives. Here's what we know. We want God to be involved. We want God to be active in our lives. You guys want God to do something in your life? He's already doing a billion things on a daily basis. He can't be more involved in your life than he already is. Now, you may want him to do more or something more dramatic, but please know this because this is a comfort for us. God is actively involved in every aspect of your life. There is no detail too small. There is no chance occurrence. Your life is not random or empty. Your life is ordered and purposeful because God is working all things toward their proper end. All things in your life, your bad day, your inconveniences, the lack of leftovers in the fridge, 
the lack of sympathy from a friend, the significant loss that you're dealing with, the pain, the affliction, the attack, whatever it is, there is purpose because God is bringing all things to their end. You want God to do something? He already is. See, the doctrine of providence isn't something that you feel, right? But it is something that you believe. It is something that you embrace. And, and as you do this, as you become more familiar with the doctrine of providence, the more settled, grounded, balanced you become in your life when things get uncomfortable. I just want to give you a couple of passages of Scripture to close here. And I'd like you to keep the, the doctrine of meditation on your mind throughout the week. Listen to Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? We're going to plan. We're going to plan, but whatever comes is going to be attended by the Lord. Or... Matthew, Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about don't worry about how you are clothed, right? Uh, God will clothe you uh, as you need it. So seek the kingdom first. And this is another, doctrine, another teaching that relates to the doctrine of, of providence. But listen to something else that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew 10, 28, Right? He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's providence, okay? Not one of the sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. God is a God of providence, he is providentially caring for governing, attending to your life in ways that you can't possibly imagine. So now, in light of this doctrine of providence, we'll close with Romans 8.28. Paul wrote this. He said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God causes all things to work together for his glory, but also for your good. So when we're having a bad day, and I know like we make light because like sometimes we are just being babies about it, right? But some days are hard, right? And this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah, he wrote that after the day had passed and he'd probably healed up from being beaten up. Some days are hard. But if you, if you know, if you believe, if you embrace that God is actively involved in every aspect of your life, the things that you are doing, experiencing, receiving, it gives you a kind of security. It strengthens your faith to know that you are not alone, that you are not without help, that you are not without purpose, that these things are not random, and that there is meaning to what you're enduring. So let's look to the God of providence who not only 
intends, right, attends to all of the aspects of our lives, but does so for our good, his glory, through Jesus Christ, who by his providence died for sinners like us, that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust that, uh, that you will make us the best theologians that we can be. Lord, that doesn't mean that we will be bookish. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to be geniuses. It means, Lord, that we want to know you and make you known. It means that we want to glorify you, that we want to have communion with you, and we want to be more like you as much as possible. Lord, so teach us, make us the best theologians that we can be, that we might bring glory and praise to you. In Christ's name, amen.